there is nothing like summer in the ocean state. You'll have a tough time picking just one thing to do in this week's Eye on Rhode Island. Starting with one of Providence's largest neighborhood events, it's the annual Hope Street Block Party. Featuring what, seven minutes members. away from the official start of summer, right Michelle? Oh yeah, we are counting it down big time with sure. a 6.07 Sun. Eastern Time. Fun. We're celebrating summer in the Ocean State. Summer is the best season in Rhode Island. It's not the Ocean State for nothing. It's a 25-minute drive to the beach, even after stopping for ice cream and donuts. People are outside all the time. They're playing basketball, running with their dogs, sitting in parks, and eating at outdoor festivals. When it gets too hot, people cool off with air conditioning or in the breezy shade. This summer is going to be a little different. It'll still be hot, but rules for curbing the spread of COVID-19 will still be in place. People can't cool off in places with air conditioning, like the mall or the Y or the movie theater. People are going to have to spend most of their time in their homes or outside. And that's going to be a problem because for many, that's not an option. So what does a, like, a really hot summer day look like then? What? Oh my gosh. Man. Man. It's, it's hell. Like literally hell. Like it's so hot. It's so, 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 so hot. And then there's probably like, what, one or two trees. So it's so hot. You open up your window and you just feel the blazing heat inside and you can just feel how hot it is. And it is and it is a problem because then you look outside, there's no trees for like miles on end. That in the summer, she can't bring her dog out to go walk because uh, uh, the dog's paws literally burn. Those summers did hit heavy because, you know, I'd be outside, I'd be playing, I'd be running around. There's no trees around, so, like, I'm just sitting on the street trying to, like, stay undercover, like, on some random person's property because it's so hot outside. Yo, the fact that, like, in my neighborhood, it's, like, five to eight degrees hotter than, like, the Blackstone Valley neighborhood. And it's, like, that's, like, less than, like, a three-mile, you know what I'm saying, jog, like, troop through the city. That's a problem. I'm Angela Zhang, and you're listening to Not Built For Us. This is a podcast about structures that keep health inequitable and how doctors can work with other fields to dismantle them and build better ones. If you know me, you know I'm really into the environment. I compost religiously, and pre-COVID, I used to bring trays of leftover food home from events and get crafty, like the curry I made with some leftover veggies and decorative kale from the platter. In medical school, I became interested in climate, environmental, and spatial justice. Those are academic words for some simple concepts. How does nature benefit us? How can we design urban spaces so everyone can have that benefit? And how is climate change affecting that? Before we answer those questions, I need to give a nod to environmental justice and indigenous rights activists who have been doing this work for years. I'm recording this episode on what is known as Providence, Rhode Island, but was considered for millennia land shared by the Narragansett, the Wampanoag, the Nipmuc, the Pequot, and the Niantic nations. Today, we'll focus on heat and shade. Why is shade so important? How are trees and shade good for you? Why aren't they distributed equally? While reporting this, I saw these big questions play out on the ground, especially for communities of color. 
People were building makeshift shade tents that skirted government regulations, all so they could stay cool while waiting for the bus. Especially now, as the weather warms and people will need to find AC and shade to regulate their temperature, this feels like a big issue. However, it's not one many doctors think about when advocating for patient health. The pattern of heat and shade we see in our cities is a result of an event cascade from racist redlining policies. I'm going to use the term shade equity a lot. Often you can find shade in the canopy cover of a tree or the overhang of a man-made structure. Shade equity frames shade as a resource, one that is distributed inequitably, like food, housing, or transportation access. It acknowledges that the wealthy have disproportionate access to this resource and that it's a structural issue, that it often affects already vulnerable and minoritized communities. It acknowledges that shade itself has health impacts. I first heard this term when talking to Sam Block. He's a journalist who used to live in Los Angeles, a city known for being soaked in sunshine. And he started writing about shade equity when he began to notice a huge difference between neighborhoods in the city, specifically the iconic Hollywood Hills. You have these lush, Edenic, basically enclaves that are sort of hidden from the rest of the city. And the valley, which is a series of neighborhoods with very little shade, where Sam would wait for the bus. And I would feel my skin heat up and I would start to get sweaty and I would try to find somewhere just to hide out from the heat. And just observing the way that people begin to contort themselves and try to find slivers of protection from the sun was interesting as one way to put it, also sort of farcical and comical because people would seek just the tiniest slivers of shade wherever they could behind a telephone pole, uh, maybe a palm tree. Sam became really interested in this idea of shade equity that someone could have more shade than another person just based on where they lived. Oftentimes, places with the least shade are also the most under-resourced in other ways and are often where the most people of color live. In LA, this inequity is not happenstance. In the 1930s, the zoning code mandated that newly constructed single-family homes should have front and side yards. These homes and high-value neighborhoods were meant to be bought by white families. More on that later. You could plant a street tree outside your home, but that was on you to pay for the maintenance. And so that doesn't happen in poor neighborhoods where people don't have money for amenities. In these poor neighborhoods that don't have wide yards and big trees in the front, you have this sort of bombed out automobile moonscape. People kind of just know that trees mean money. Some neighborhoods used to be built for industry and transport. So you might find a lot of power lines, narrow sidewalks, and intersections. Well, you know, this is a formerly industrial neighborhood, so we have all these overhead power lines here, and city regulations are that you can't really plant a shade tree under an overhead power line. And then because this is an industrial neighborhood, it's very narrow sidewalks, you don't have big enough tree wells to plant a thick tree. Regulations around obstructions, around field of vision, that are very calculated to benefit automobiles. So you can't plant a tree within 60 feet of an intersection or 15 feet of a driveway. So you see that the built environment has basically precluded um, any possibility for trees. These regulations aren't meant to be racist. That's important, because even if the intent isn't racist, the impact continues in equity by literally outlawing shade. Other times, outlawing shade felt more purposeful. In South LA, the local government trimmed and removed street trees close to where sex workers congregated. In housing projects, police would forbid trees that obstructed sightlines of the surveillance cameras mounted on street poles, even though the cameras don't deter crime anyways. As Sam talked about L.A., I saw Providence, Rhode Island. 
That's where I live now, and that's where I'll be unpacking this. How did shade inequity become such a big issue, and why does it look so similar from LA to Providence? I'm walking in South Providence with Jerome Hazen, a resident who lives here. South and West Providence sit across the river from the east side, where Brown University is located. Though they are only a mile apart, the two sides of the river couldn't look more different. The east side, with its lush trees and manicured lawns, houses a lot of Brown's academic faculty and students. West and South Providence are home to more of the working class and folks of color, and look more industrial and barren. Oh, it's just bleak. It's bleak. Huh. You know, it's concrete and oil stains everywhere. Interesting. There's more trees in the cemetery that are beautiful and provide more shade. For who? Dead people. Jay and I walked down Elmwood, one of the main streets in this area. Looks like nice weather coming up today. Up to 55 degrees. It's pretty warm for a winter day, and lots of people are outside. I'm constantly adjusting the angle of my mic because of the wind, which you can hear as background. The wind just, you know, barrels down. Then you stop it. Where I live, there's no trees around the building, so... You know, the walls are cold, it's drafty. Even on this crisp winter day, I'm feeling the direct sunlight. I wore layers, but I'm peeling them off one by one. We walk into the shade of a big tree, the first we've seen in almost a mile. But the other half of the sidewalk is almost totally taken up by a city trash can. Between that and the tree well, it's a narrow space. A person with a walker comes towards us. We have to step into the road to let them pass. Waking up to this all the day, every time, for kids, it's like, it's just so bleak. And the energy, it just feels, you just feel more alone. And this is what, this is a child care center? Kids run around the playground, swinging and sliding and shouting. The only shade from the winter sun is underneath the monkey bars. I can't imagine this playground in the hot, muggy New England summers. On a warm summer day, that's clear. And it's maybe above 80. In most cities, you're going to get to temperatures that can be dangerous to kids. This is Dr. Jennifer Vanos, an assistant professor at Arizona State University. She studies playgrounds and how their construction can affect the health of kids. Heat, she says, is one of the biggest issues. Because of playground safety guidelines, we have to use things like rubber or plastic Um, that can heat up a lot when they're not shaded. And so they can heat up to temperatures upwards of 160 to 170 Fahrenheit. If you don't shade a plastic or a rubber surface, then kids can easily burn themselves on those surfaces. These burns sometimes hurt kids enough to send them to the emergency room. They're also underreported since they aren't all serious enough to seek medical attention. The heat that reflects off surfaces can lead to hyperthermia and heat exertion. It doesn't even have to be that hot for all this to happen. And what you find when you go into the shade and measure the surface temperatures in the shade is that they will generally almost reach as low as air temperature. If it's on grass, then it can be even cooler. So take a typical summer day. It's 80 degrees out and sunny. A shaded grassy playground will be fine, but on an unshaded playground on that same day, it can be dangerous for kids and parents who won't want to hang around in the beaming sun while their kids play. Outside of the playground, adults face similar issues when they want to go outside for exercise. Whenever I went to go work out, I went to the, the green part of the city, which wasn't where I lived. Blackstone Boulevard in the east side, like I was going to work out there instead of like finding a path, like a 
a walking trail like of where I felt kind of spoke to, you know, to the community that I'm more from. This is Kufa Castro. He's a community organizer who teaches high schoolers about environmental advocacy in Central Falls, Rhode Island, a densely populated, deeply Latinx former mill city just north of Providence. He describes what it's like to lead a group of teenagers on a walk through the town. And just feeling that low tree canopy and not having places to stop for shade for miles and how rough that was. Like, it didn't feel, it felt like boot camp. There's a reason that just walking in the heat feels like a workout. Heat stresses your body, and sometimes that stress can be extreme enough to land you in the hospital. You might go for dehydration, heat stroke, or worsening of existing kidney or heart disease. Maybe you got so dehydrated that you got kidney stones or a UTI. A 10-degree Fahrenheit increase in temperature can lead to 24% more admissions to the emergency department. 10 degrees seems like a big jump, of the difference you might see over months as days progress towards summer. But on the same summer day in Providence, if the ground temperature under the leafy trees of Brown University measures 82 degrees, it can be as hot as 95 degrees in Pawtucket and Central Falls. That right there is a difference that could land someone in the ED. And that's a problem, because so much of what health professionals recommend for patients is about physical activity. All the healthy children eat well and move a lot. And move a lot. And move a lot. Eat well and move a lot. 60 minutes of physical activity a day and eating well can help get your child healthy. Get going at letsmove.gov. The most up-to-date clinical guidelines suggest a range of 150 to 300 minutes per week of moderate to intense aerobic activity. That breaks down to just a little under an hour a day. For residents of Central Falls, Pawtucket, South or West Providence, the lack of shade and green spaces in their neighborhoods makes it harder to exercise and stay healthy. So my name is Chelsea Graham. I am a health center doctor. I work at Thunder Mist. Dr. Chelsea Graham sees patients in Pawtucket with Brown's Family Mad Residency. The clinic sees a lot of patients with chronic conditions like diabetes, lung disease, high blood pressure, heart disease, asthma, eczema, and obesity. She describes one patient in particular. He's an older gentleman from the South who has spent a lot of time outside and loves. He's a very social guy. Before he moved to the Pawtucket Central Falls area, he loved to be outdoors and would walk all the time. But then when he moved to Pawtucket? I think here it's just kind of the extremes, right? It's either really cold in the winter, and so he's like, doesn't feel comfortable going outside. And in the summer, it's just almost too hot. And so he isolates, and that affects his mood, affects his depression, staying inside, and then it affects his diabetes. So it's very multifactorial. Being stuck inside is causing problems for many of Dr. Graham's patients. Those who have recently immigrated often talk about adjusting to extra hot summers and extra cold winters. They don't feel like they have outdoor spaces to socialize, which are really important community-oriented ways to improve mental well-being. So that's all the bad stuff if you don't have trees. But what if you do? What's so great about trees besides protecting you from heat? Trees are miracle workers. They are everywhere, but often blend right in. They help squirrel away carbon, protect ecosystems, mitigate flooding, and even may help our bodies calm down without us realizing it. Beyond the physical medical concerns of overly hot environments, there is a ton of research about the ways that just the presence of trees can change the ways our bodies react and run. Dr. Eugenia South practices medicine in Philadelphia. She researches the effect of the presence and lack of what she calls urban vegetation on her city's residents. 
So people talked about vacant land as fracturing ties between neighbors. Uh, people talked about physical health, particularly as it related to kids and the risk of injury and then trash buildup. They said the abandoned homes just messes up like the beauty of the neighborhood. It makes me feel not important. Seeing vacant lots and abandoned buildings, to me, that's a sign of neglect. So I feel neglected. Dr. South created a study to understand how Philadelphians experience this neglect. She had residents walk around wearing heart monitors and measure their heart rates as a marker of acute stress. If you're in a stressful situation, like you have to give a talk or you are walking down the street, it's dark, you see someone across the street, you feel your heart rate going up. And that's a physiologic response to stress. That's your fight or flight mechanism. This was this is a pretty landmark study because when you think about randomized controlled trials, normally you're randomizing people to get, you know, drug A or drug B or intervention A or intervention B. What we did in this trial was we randomized places to get an intervention. We took 541 vacant lots and randomly assigned them to get either the greening treatment, a trash cleanup only treatment, or a no intervention, and that was the control. Dr. South found some pretty incredible results. The heart rate of people who walked by the green lots went down almost 16 beats a minute, compared to those who walked by the control unchanged site. So this was sort of a signal to us that these newly green spaces helped people to almost de-stress. So before, perhaps they were sort of stressful spaces, and after the greening, they became less stressful based on heart rate. In research interviews, residents felt safer where there were more green lots, and they went outside more. In general, those people exhibited fewer depressive symptoms, even if they lived in impoverished neighborhoods with histories of extreme violence. Gun assaults went down by um, up to 29% in neighborhoods below the poverty line. So you can see that this is um, a pretty powerful intervention, so much so that the city of Philadelphia has actually incorporated vacant lot greening into their violence prevention plan. Um, so for the first time, the violence prevention plan, which is still heavily focused on individuals, also now involves place-based intervention. And I keep coming back to this, but again, this um, idea that changing the environment can actually change how people relate to each other. Many of the communities we've talked about that lack trees are also some of the ones most marginalized and under-resourced. Clearly, this didn't happen overnight. So, how did it get this way? I had lived in Providence for three years and wanted to know more about how the city was designed. How did the spaces that had the fewest trees also have the most people of color, the most health disparities, and the most waste byways? To answer that, we need to rewind several decades and talk about something called redlining. In 1933, there was this entity called the Homeowners Loan Corporation. It was founded as part of the New Deal. The corporation was supposed to refinance defaulted home mortgages to prevent foreclosures. There were a lot of these because, remember, this was during the Great Depression. They created what they called residential security maps in most major U.S. cities. The maps advised which neighborhoods were at high risk for mortgage lending. They drew red lines around these neighborhoods, and lending institutions could deny those areas access to different types of investments. This would have been fine except that the red lines the corporations drew around those high-risk neighborhoods were mostly neighborhoods with communities of color. In Rhode Island, those were black, Portuguese, and Italian communities. When the Federal Housing Administration sent out a manual that directed people in real estate on how to use these maps, they instructed them to keep white neighborhoods white for the property values. 
That sounds racist, but the 1938 manual literally talks about quote incompatible unquote groups in white neighborhoods. In this way, they codify the link between whiteness and high property values. Redlining still exists today. You can see it in how neighborhoods are resourced, which is not by accident. But you can also feel it on a hot day. My name is、uh, Jeremy Hoffman. I'm the chief scientist at the Science Museum of Virginia and a faculty member at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. Jeremy and his team were looking at the urban heat island effect in Richmond. They found that the warmest and coolest places during a heat wave in Richmond were 16 degrees apart. If you've listened this far, you'll know we've already talked about this. But here's where it relates back to redlining. And when we looked at the spatial expression of those temperatures, this map looked a lot like our redlining map, whereby the hotter areas, which we were actually representing with redder tones, were in the same places as the redlined districts drawn by the homeowners loan corporation in the 30s. So we asked a really simple follow-up question:、uh, Are there statistically significant differences between the temperatures experienced in the formerly redlined neighborhoods versus the non-redlined neighborhoods? The researchers looked at 108 areas that have been redlined and had land surface temperature data. Our results are quite stark in that 94% of the cities that were redlined show the exact same tendency, whereby the formerly redlined areas are physically warmer during the summer than their non-redlined neighbors. We've, for a long time, recognized that economic disparities are related to health disparities and differential climate vulnerabilities in cities. But very rarely have we ever asked, like, how did we get here? Linking this redlining map to the heat island map was a way of connecting the present to the past in a new way and in a really visceral way. It's like you know, a decision that was made almost a hundred years ago. Is playing out today as a climate vulnerability is just amazing, but really incredibly troubling. This same connection exists in Providence. So my name is Sam Corin. I'm a PhD student in American Studies at Brown. Sam spent most of their life in South Providence and Cranston. Back then, Allen's Avenue was farmland and forested. Kids were free to sort of run around. They used to hop on the back of freight cars and steal potato chips and stuff like that. Now it's lined with industrial plants, fenced in behind narrow sidewalks and blowing trash. How did this happen? The building of I ninety five sort of sealed the fate. Allen Dave and the waterfront, the petroleum storage facilities that are there now, and the scrap metal yards, and all the different heavy industrial uses are sort of locked in place by zoning. Zoning is the official governmental designation of land for different uses. Allen's Avenue is zoned as heavy industrial, which creates red tape for any other suggested use. Zoning is inherently racial and political too. Providence is built on a river that cuts the city into smaller chunks. The river waterfronts used to be highway corridors, industrial sites, and warehouse districts. The waterfronts on the east side of Providence have transformed into green, walkable, inviting spaces. India Point Park bustles every summer with festivals, families, dogs, water sports, and a bike trail. The Water by Brown University is a site of a almost weekly festival called Waterfire that draws tourists from all over. But for the waterfronts by Allen's Avenue, the only officially allowed uses are industry and adult entertainment venues. What Allen Dave is today, the fact that the waterfront is heavy industrial and heavily contaminated, has to do with the, the fact that the South Side historically has been less politically powerful than other parts of the city. So then, after an area is redlined and has cheap land prices, 
that starts leading to a cascade of events. In Providence, a lot of neighborhoods that were redlined were also divided by newly built highway on and off ramps, factoring communities even further. This is a lot of the land. In fact, in the 1930s maps, the only green or best neighborhood was the east side of Providence. Yup, you guessed it, the green spaces near brown. The rest of the neighborhoods were colored yellow or red and were deemed more risky. And I'll just remind you again that these neighborhoods were deemed risky because black and brown folks lived there. They were designed for passage for things like carriages and cargo, and so had big wide streets that were made for driving, not for walking. Neighborhoods that were built for workers and the working class tended to be designed more hastily without this kind of provisions for greenery and landscape that go into the building of um, more affluent districts. Shade inequity isn't a new problem. In Rhode Island, Groundworks, where Kufa works, has done some incredible community outreach in Pawtucket and Central Falls, which are historically low-income and redlined areas. Groundwork Providence Green Team provides summer jobs to youth, giving them the opportunity to participate in environmental education programs and community service They assess projects. which yards would be good to plant shade trees in, and they also plant trees at local elementary schools. But, Kufa says, this kind of advocacy work is difficult to do when you are working with a predominantly white local government. Kufa recalls sitting in on a government meeting where local officials discussed heat maps and tree canopies in Providence. And seeing that the, you know, where the hottest blisters are on the map is where I live, where everybody I know lives, and seeing that discrepancy and just the fact of our concentration and these real hot spots. Like, I've never felt so much, like, tension in a room. And I feel like this work has to come with, like, a lot of, like, counseling and therapy for the people that you you share this information with and that you work in this field because it's some heavy stuff. Okay, so I've talked about the disparity in shade equity within a few square miles in Providence, the history behind that, and why it harms the health of our patients. It shouldn't surprise you that this is all getting worse with climate change. Climate change is already affecting our most vulnerable communities. These communities are worldwide, but also right here. Already, our cities are seeing one, five, ten more dangerously hot days each summer. If we don't take action on the climate crisis, cities like Baltimore, Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, and New York could see 70 more days of extreme heat, which would result in extras of thousands of deaths per year. And remember from the top of this episode, the communities without trees are hotter, so they might have more extreme heat days than we actually measure from our weather stations. Climate change doesn't always look like hurricanes, floods, or heat waves. The climate crisis is sneaky. For a while, it will continue to look like balmy sundress days in December, or mixed hail and sleet in April. It will look like the just barely increased salt in freshwater reservoirs in Bangladesh, so small of an increase that you can't taste it but has been correlated with preterm births. It will look like us compensating for the differences in food supply until one day, the vulnerable won't be able to compensate anymore. It already looks like Pawtucket streets burning dog paws and the basketball courts feeling like skillets in the summer. These will seem like isolated incidences because our minds are not wired to piece all the warning signs together. Let's pause and do an emotional check-in. You may be feeling overwhelmed right now. So what can we do as doctors? First, our voices matter. Everett Pope from Sunrise, Rhode Island. Do you feel like doctors should care about this stuff? And like, Hell how yeah! Should... Hell yeah! Y'all got, like, come Why? on. Why? Because y'all got juice. Like, what, the random doctor I ain't never heard of for my whole life 
could write a random paper and that's going to be headline news for the next week and a half. They're going to be talking about that study. You know what I'm saying? Like, y'all got influence. So advocacy for this can look like a lot of different things. Underlying it all, I want to come back to shade equity. Like, shade is a resource we can choose to allocate equally, but usually do not. Just like food, water, clean air, and housing. First, you can talk with your patients. Talk to them about exercising while being conscious of their built environment. When I interviewed Dr. Graham, she talked through how she counseled patients on their diets. What have you tried? Um, What's working for you? What's not working for you? And I try and go for the heavy hitters like soda. Also asking about like access to food, what groceries can you buy and that kind of stuff. Because again, I'm not going to tell people what to eat if they can't afford it or if they can't get to the grocery store. As you can tell, Dr. Graham has practiced at this. What if doctors could do this about shade? When we give activity recommendations to patients, we might ask them how they feel about being outside in their neighborhood. Do they feel safe? Where are the sidewalks and the parks? Are there trees and shade, a breeze? Can they be outside without overheating? Do they have AC units indoors? So there is this movement called ParkRx, which sort of involves prescribing nature. So a physician actually um, giving a patient a prescription to go out in nature. This is still very early. There's really no evidence around this yet. I think nature right now is where exercise was 15 or 20 years ago. The second thing we can do is advocate on a larger scale. For instance, the team of Greg Wallenius, a professor at Boston University School of Public Health, successfully advocated for the Weather Service to lower the temperature at which heat advisories were sent out. Dr. Wallenius also says that action on climate change is really, really important. Climate change is likely the number one threat to public health gains that we'll see in our lifetimes, but it's also the number one opportunity to create a better, healthier, more equitable society. This is not a problem about a far-off distance or other people. This is going to impact you and your family and your community today and tomorrow. You can also get involved in research. Dr. Vano said it means a lot to researchers like her to access data sets that doctors have, like pediatric asthma rates. Researchers know more about air temperature or air quality, but don't have the evidence to drive policy. If you combine the two, you can start showing policymakers the intersection between health inequity and environmental justice. People will listen more when you make it about health than just about an air temperature. The the first question people ask, well, what does that mean for people's health in the city or people's health in the neighborhood? We should work with policymakers, architects, urban planners, arborists, historians, and most importantly, the folks in the community itself. That way, the solutions are ones the communities actually need. Maybe it's planting trees or creating shade with other materials. Maybe it's scoring communities based on their climate justice initiatives. By collaborating, we can also do our best to avoid pitfalls down the road, like greening neighborhoods without considering that it's often the first step to gentrification. While doing all of this, we have to remember to center the communities that this advocacy really benefits. Getting into this field and not seeing that many professionals of color was a hard thing, like going into city hall meetings and woof, being like the only one. And then I wonder if I go in there and everybody's white, but Tucker doesn't look like that. Right now, I'm recording this while sitting on a comforter in my closet. We're in the middle of COVID-19, an unprecedented pandemic that has changed our world, but not as much as climate change will. We have to stay inside as much as possible and stay six feet away from others. What will this look like in Pawtucket, Central Falls, and West and South Providence this summer if these rules are still in place? 
What will it look like when the inside of a home is just as hot as the outside and all the parks are full? With higher rates of infection and unemployment, COVID is already disproportionately affecting Black and Brown communities the most. This summer will still be in a pandemic, and the lack of green spaces and shade equity will be even more apparent in our neighborhoods. Part of my goal with these audio essays is to amplify the voices outside of medicine, the ones I didn't know about until I made an effort to branch out. I've felt frustrated listening to the struggles of community advocates, the makeshift solutions that skirt regulations to help other people. But I've also felt hopeful. I've interviewed people all around the country who think and work and live this. So close your eyes for a moment. Think about the neighborhoods we've just walked through together, either in Providence or the ones similar in your city. Think about the racist ways redlining echoes through history into today. And now, think about how we start to change that. How would it look different with trees everywhere, leaves rustling in the wind and shade over you? Think about what your patients would do if the built space were changed. I think we can imagine a better future. Well, when we planted, even kids that weren't in the workshops that we were giving, you can see them like touching the tree. And that was like such a sight of being so curious, naming the trees, named like Fred Spots, and feeling like really connected to them. Like, what do you think you would do differently? Me? If there were, yeah, you oh. or your friends, like, what would you do differently if there were actually trees like there were on Blackstone? We probably go out more, like walk around more. Like my friends think I'm weird that I like still walk and like try to take the bus. Like, but yeah, nah. I think we would definitely like walk more. We enjoy the city a little bit more, and it just make everything like so much more beautiful. This episode was written, edited, hosted, and produced by me, Angela Zhang. I use she/her pronouns, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University. I'll be applying to residencies this fall. This episode would not have been possible without the Office of Diversity and Multicultural Affairs at my medical school, who employed me as a fellow for this last year and helped fund some of this work. Being able to dive full time into these complex topics was invaluable. I met so many people passionate about this work, not all of whom made it into the audio for this episode, but I'll link their work in the show notes. If you want to learn more, these are the experts. Thanks to Max Jordan Nungameni Tiako. Eugenia South, Jennifer Vanos, Greg Wolenius, Chelsea Graham, Jeremy Hoffman, Kufa Castro, Frank from Shea High School, Everett Pope, Jay Hazen, Sam Block, Sam Corin, Chineri Abai, and David Eisenman for their time and energy. For their help with ideation, patient editing, and listen-throughs, a huge thanks to Allison Berenger, Anna Gonzalez, Laura Garbez, Maggie Goddard, Sarah Shu, Andres Lundgren, Fatima Hussein, and Judy Burr. Music credits to Kevin McLeod, Lee Rosevere, Poddington Bear, and the Let's Move campaign. <laughs>